to Testimony Tuesday. I actually hesitated to share my testimony because I thought perhaps I really did not have much to share. I led a very protected life and do not have anything dramatic to tell that the Lord delivered me from. Living life without much drama, but not realizing what was missing in their life on the spiritual side. So there's probably a lot of people like me out there that felt like that. My testimony is a story of a loving God who first pursued me, then saved me, and has kept me in every circumstance. This quote is from the article, God's Pursuit of Man. Throughout scripture, we encounter a God who is on a quest, a sinking God, chasing and pursuing. It should startle us that the completely omniscient, self-sufficient God that owns everything and needs nothing would seek for something, and that something would be us. My two brothers and I were raised in a loving Christian home in the Catholic religion. Our mom was always able to stay home with us. My dad worked very hard to provide for us, and we had everything that materially that we needed. Um, it was a great sacrifice financially for our family, but our parents felt like that we needed to attend Catholic school. Actually, it was not a choice, as it was taught that children must attend Catholic school. Until the end of my freshman year in high school, I attended a Catholic private school. I wore a uniform every day. In those days, girls always wore skirts or dresses to school. We were allowed to wear a belt and shoes of our choice, but other than that, a uniform of white blouses and navy blue pleated skirts was worn. All of our books were centered around our religion. The stories in our readers were about Jesus, Mary, and the saints. Religion classes were part of our curriculum. We always attended Mass on Fridays. From fourth to ninth grade, we lived in Lafayette, Louisiana, where Catholicism is the dominant religion. In our city, there were both a convent and a seminary. The convent is a place where women who feel a call to becoming a nun, which is called a vocation, can go. When girls are in the sixth grade and feel, felt like they had a call to be a nun, they could um, go to the convent and live there among the nuns to see if they had a vocation. I admired the nuns so much at that time in my life. They dressed so godly in their habits, and I felt they were so holy. They were married to Christ and even wore a gold wedding ring to signify that dedication. I knew that their whole lives were dedicated to God, and that appealed to me. I thought that spending much time in prayer and serving God was what I wanted to do. So I asked my parents if that was something I could do. My family was against it, so I wasn't able to do that. But looking back on that time, I see that God was calling me to a deeper walk with him. I just didn't know how to start on that journey. Our family moved to East Texas at the end of my freshman year. There was no Catholic high school, so for the first time in my life, I attended public school. Girls still wore only dresses to school, and I still attended religion classes one night a week. I lived the typical high school life of dating, parties, and participating in our church youth group. We lived not far from Bossier City, Louisiana, where the drinking age was legal at 18. So driving over there when we were supposed to be going out on dates to other places was something, was a common thing to do. The other worst thing that we did in those days was go to the drive-in movie. My parents did not approve of either of these things, but I did them anyway. 
Catholics were not supposed to visit any other church, so I never knew what a revival was. The uncle of one of the boys that I dated was a Baptist preacher, and I was invited to attend a revival he was holding. For the first time, I saw how God can touch a person in a service. My boyfriend's uncle asked him to step out in the aisle and come to the front of the church. The uncle wanted to pray over him because he was going off to college. My boyfriend and his mom were actually crying in church. I did not understand why that would happen at the time. After I graduated, I immediately went to attend the first summer session at the University of Houston. I chose that university for two reasons. A boy I was dating at the time was attending there, and there was a great program in the field of study that I was pursuing, medical technology. I knew that I needed to continue following my Catholic faith by attending Mass, but it didn't take long for other activities of college life to become more important to me. That first summer, I met my husband on a blind date, and that relationship began. I pledged a sorority and was caught up in parties and mixers with fraternities. I was living the best college life, dating a football player, enjoying making new friends, and doing well in my classes. There was no time for church or spiritual thinking. My blind date soon became my steady. Both of our futures looked bright. But we were not wise in some of our decisions, and our lives changed abruptly when we found out that we had a baby on the way. What to do? I was offered the option of living with my parents, and they would help me. But my boyfriend and I knew that we loved each other, and so we chose to be married at the ages of 19 and 20 and start our life together. Fortunately, we had supportive family members who helped us financially, and we were able to have an apartment of our own. Our son Christopher was born and all seemed well. He was baptized as a, an infant in the Catholic Church, which was what we felt was the right thing to do. However, we did not go to church. Sunday was for other things. When Chris was a baby, cloth diapers were the norm. Disposables were something new and an item we could not afford. So I would take the diapers down to the washeteria in our apartment complex to wash and dry them. One day, I met another young mom who also had a baby boy. We became friends, and before long, she invited me to a ladies' meeting at her church. Kathy had also been raised in the Catholic faith and did not mention that the ladies' meeting would be at a different type of church. That ladies' meeting turned out to be a ladies' prayer meeting at Irvington Pentecostal Church. Coming from a church where prayer was silent and reverent, I was not prepared for a Pentecostal ladies' prayer meeting. I knelt at the altar and tried to make myself as small as possible. I had never heard anyone pray out loud, much less in the spirit. I was terrified and just wanted to run out of there and never come back. I had no idea what was going on. Women were wailing and interceding, and I was so scared. Finally, the prayer meeting ended, and Kathy introduced me to one of the older ladies of the church. They began to hug and dance around, speaking in tongues. I didn't know what that was, but I did know Kathy, and I knew that whatever was happening was something great and real. I have not seen Kathy for many years, but I think of and pray for her often. She is one of the most important people ever to come into my life. Why? In all my 19 years, I had never heard of a Pentecostal church. I thought my church that I was raised in was a true church, and that as long as I followed its teachings— went to confession and received communion, I could at least make it to purgatory when I died. If I needed help to make it onto heaven, prayers could be said on my behalf. 
Perhaps her invitation to me was the one chance I would ever have to be exposed to the truth. I did not know that I did not know, but God was so gracious to send someone to open that door for me. Don't ever think that your invitation to someone is not important. It can be the most important invitation that person will ever receive. Kathy and her husband Cliff became friends to us and began teaching us a search for truth Bible study. They invited us to church every Sunday. We really meant to go. Sometimes we did, and other times we chose to party on Saturday night and left a note on their door which said that we could not make it. However, they never gave up on us and just kept teaching us and inviting us. As I mentioned earlier, feeling anything and showing emotion in church was foreign to me. When we did attend church, I loved the songs and worship. I didn't know what feeling the presence of the Lord felt like, so I thought those goosebumps were because they kept the church so cold. The more I learned of God, the more hungry I became to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I was at the altar praying after every service. I prayed at home. I read my Bible, searching for a revelation of truth from the Word. I was still working on feeling that I had really repented. My whole life I confessed my sins to a man and accepted that they were forgiven after praying the prayers he assigned to me. I didn't know what real repentance was. One night I had a dream that I wanted to be baptized but was told that I could not be before I did certain things. I knew that I needed to be baptized in Jesus' name, so I made up my mind I was going to do that the next Sunday night. At the end of the service, I made my way to the altar once again and found what real repentance felt like. I knew then that I was ready for baptism and took that step that night. Of course, I was overjoyed with my new relationship with Jesus and wrote my parents a long letter explaining all that had happened. That was our main way of communicating in those days, as long-distance phone calls were very expensive and not often made. Days went by with no letter from my mom, which was unusual. The letter I finally received expressed no joy from her for my newfound experience. I was told that was the worst thing that had ever happened to my family, and how could I associate with that kind of people? At that time, the Pentecostal church had an across-the-tracks negative connotation. I was an embarrassment to my family. I was devastated by, that, by their, their reaction and felt so hurt. I kept seeking for the Holy Ghost at every service and at home. I could not understand why it was taking me so long to receive it. I searched my heart and my life, making every dedication I could and still did not receive that precious gift. I loved attending church and Sunday school, which was taught by our pastor's wife. I admired Sister Dee so much and wanted to be like her. Something she said one Sunday morning concerning a godly woman made such an impression on me. She said that not one time had Brother Dee's ever had to say something about the way that she was dressed. I so wanted to have my husband say that of me. I wanted to be a godly woman like she was. So many things were new to us. Tithing? What's that? How can we possibly do that? No TV? No movies? No makeup? That was the hardest thing for me. I felt so unattractive after having worn makeup for so long. We had so much to learn about living for God. That summer, we moved to Port Natchez, Texas, so that my husband could attend pipefitter school. Little Chris and I began attending Groves United Pentecostal Church, and in August, I received the Holy Ghost. I will never forget the precious ladies who prayed with me 
long after everyone else had left the service. They kept encouraging me to keep praying and not give up. Don't ever think that tarrying in prayer with someone seeking the Holy Ghost is not important. Not long after that, our young pastor died in a tragic accident. That was a very difficult time for our church. Months went by, and my husband decided to attend church with me to hear a singing group that was holding services. Soon after that, he came back to God and was filled with the Holy Ghost. I continued to be an embarrassment to my mom by the way I dressed and fixed my hair. When we would go out together, she would comment that people were looking at me and ask if that bothered me. I could honestly say no, not at all. I was happy knowing that I looked the way God wanted me to. After I initially received the Holy Ghost, I did not speak in tongues again for a very long time. I longed to and wanted to and sought to, but it did not happen. I did not doubt that I had received the Holy Ghost, even though the devil tried that tactic. One night during a revival service, when I was feeling desperate for an answer, the evangelist pointed to me and said, Lady in the red dress, I want to pray for you. I walked down to the altar, and as he laid hands on me, I fell to the ground and began speaking in other tongues. He said, Now let him, the devil, tell you that you don't have it. God used the evangelist who did not know me or anything about me to send the answer that I needed. So our lives were happy with friends in the church, a wonderful pastor, and much time spent in fellowship and Bible study. Then our beloved pastor was caught in adultery with one of the women in the church. This was a devastating time for our family and our church, but God let us know that we needed to stay and stay strong. We were then blessed with a wonderful young pastor and his family, There was some opposition to our new pastor from some of the leaders in our church, but our church weathered that storm as well. Several of our young men, my husband among them, felt the call to preach and began to evangelize. During that day, revivals lasted five nights a week for weeks at a time. So our lives were full of God and our growing family. After some time, my husband and our pastor felt that it was time for us to answer the calling to pastor a church of our own. An invitation was received to minister at a church needing a pastor at a very country town in West Central Texas. It was so country that there was a possum, dead possum, in the middle of the road in town. After preaching there, my husband said that he would know it was God's will for us to go there if the vote to choose him as pastor was 100%. I felt pretty sure that would not or could not happen, but it did. Our first pastorate was a small congregation of older saints, the youngest of which was 65. It was a very difficult time for me. I missed my church, my friends, and city life. I learned to depend on God more than ever. I had to learn new things, and I made a lot of mistakes. There is a learning curve in becoming a pastor's wife, but I know that my insecurities made me realize how dependent I needed to be on him. There are some things that can only be learned by experiencing them. You see, I was not the type of minister's wife that ministers were recommended to seek to complement their ministry. I was already a wife before my husband was a minister. I could not play or sing well enough to be an asset to my husband's ministry and felt so inadequate as a minister's wife in that area, especially among other talented pastor's wives. But I learned that there are many areas to serve as a pastor's wife that are just as important. Our church grew and prospered, and we were so thankful. After three years, God began to deal with my husband about making a change in his ministry. 
He was contacted by Brother Moore to attend a, le- a launcher ministry meeting in Austin. There was a big push at that time to start a number of home missions churches in the Austin area. We were appointed to pastor the home missions church in San Marcos. We were able to find a home with adequate space to hold services. There was one Pentecostal family in town who joined us for services. The home missions division provided folding chairs for our living room for extra seating, and we were so excited. Our church began to grow, and we moved to another church building for Sunday services. Eventually, we were able to buy some property, and the Texas district moved one of the mobile chapels onto that land for us. Our church continued to to grow, excuse me, and we were blessed. At that time, our children were 18, Chris, Jennifer was 14, and Anthony was 8. Chris had just graduated from high school and had been accepted at Texas State. Sunday, June 14, 1987, was the final church service that Chris attended. Brother and sister Gurley preached for us that Sunday. The following night, Chris and his girlfriend, Brooke, ate dinner with us and went out on a date to go into town for ice cream. I fell asleep waiting on them to come back home. When I woke up and realized that it was far after Chris's uh, curfew and they were not back, I knew something was wrong. All the next day, police, friends, and family were searching for them. Their pictures were being shown on the news media. Brooke's grandfather was searching in his plane and spotted Chris's car from the air not far from our home. We received a call that they had been found and that both Chris and Brooke had died. My husband and brother Moore went to where the car had been found but were not allowed to go to the car by the police. Meeting with funeral directors, two closed casket services, churches full of high school friends, district officials, family, cards, and flowers filled the next few days. The love and support kept us going. Then the really hard days came when it's just you, a closet full of clothes. Graduation gifts still to be put away. A bicycle on the front porch reminding you that your child will never need these things again. Through it all, Jesus was the only real comfort that we had. It was and still is the most devastating thing that ever happened to us. Our grieving processes took very different directions. I self-help and grief counseling while my husband felt like that was not necessary. I felt like I had to visit Chris's grave every day while my husband did not want to go there at all. One of us wanted to talk about what happened while the other chose to hold all feelings inside. Needless to say, this took a very great toll on our marriage, our family, and my husband's ministry. After a year or so, my husband resigned his pastorate and began working away from home to cope with the loss of our son. Managing the grief of the loss of a child can be devastating and overwhelming. There is no right or wrong way to do so. Each person has to find their own way of dealing with it. And sometimes that means a change of location. Sometimes it means staying and trying to make life as normal as possible. I have to be honest and say that these were very difficult days. Jennifer had lost her older brother, who she loved so much, and Anthony at eight was too young to understand death. I had to stay strong for them and can truly say that his strength is perfect when our strength is gone. We soon made Austin First Church our church home. We had attended here many times while in home missions work for the fellowship and the strength we would gain from the awesome Sunday night services. Now, this was our church family that held us close, prayed with us, and encouraged us. 
The major thing I would like to leave with you about my testimony is that no matter what comes your way in life, no matter how difficult, no matter how lonely or hurt you may feel, never consider turning back. Through devastating circumstances my family has gone through that I am unable to mention, through circumstances that I could not share with anyone, when I so needed a human person to talk to but could not, I always knew that God was with me and that I could make it through anything with him. He has been my counselor and friend through every situation. He has never given me bad or wrong advice. I trusted him when I could not find my way, but he always made a way for me. He has ordered my steps through every deep valley and up the side of every steep mountain. He has put amazing men and women of God in my life who believed in me when I did not believe in myself. It is imperative to have church family members who you trust to pray with you and counsel you through the rough times. It is very hard for me to share personal situations and struggles because I feel like I should be able to do everything on my own. But I have found there is so much strength in binding together in love with my church family. I have learned to reach out and not be ashamed to ask for help. Perhaps one of the most important things I have learned in living for God is to have the spirit of perseverance, which by definition is this. Any victorious follower of Jesus will be schooled by the Holy Spirit in perseverance. It's a qualifier for usefulness in the kingdom of God. Perseverance is a continued effort to do something and to become something despite difficulties, failure, or opposition. That is the essence of my testimony, and I hope it can encourage someone else to stay in the fight, no matter how beat up and broken you feel. As Pastor said in his message Sunday, we know we are saved when we keep moving forward. Finally, I would like to leave with you the words to this song that means so much to me. There's not a mountain too tall, there's not a problem too small, that Jesus can't resolve in time he'll get involved. He really cares about you. Thank you so much for listening to my testimony.